Confusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature Australian elephants, cybernetic insects and energy catalyzers. But first up, here's the news with Larissa Savas and Therese Chen. Designer babies are a constant source of contention. However, the latest spin on the concept by Sydney scientists is shining the designer baby in a positive light. Argued is fraught with danger by opponents. Creating a designer baby could avoid the dangers of multi-organ failure and fatal heart, liver and muscle conditions associated with mitochondrial mutations. Tissues and organs are reliant on mitochondrial respiration for energy. Thus, if minimum threshold energy requirements are not met due to a dysfunction in the mitochondrial respiratory chain, Due to mitochondrial mutations, tissues and organs will fail to function. A solution to this problem suggested by IVF Australia is to prevent women with the genetic condition from passing it on to their children by removing defective mitochondrial genes in the mother's ovum and replacing them with healthy ones sourced from a donor. However, there is the possibility that the foreign DNA may be destroyed. Another technique is to transfer the nucleus from the mother's ovum, which contains the genes that determine behaviour and appearance, to a donated egg. But this would require removing all the mitochondria from the mother's ova, a difficult process given the close proximity of the mitochondria to the nucleus. Either way, it is a case of one baby and three parents, with a sperm from the father to be used to fertilise a reconstructed egg. Despite the potential benefits of such experimentation, there is always the legal red tape. Australian scientists are banned from using DNA of greater than two people in any research, and staunch opposition from advocacy groups and religious organisations is not helping the law get pushed further in favour of this research. Wild elephants in the Australian outback? It may sound strange and far-fetched, but that is the solution proposed by ecologist David Bowman. David Bowman is a professor of environmental change biology in Tasmania, and in a recent Nature publication, has suggested that species, including elephants and rhinos, be used to replace the megafauna which used to exist in Australia, thus regaining environmental stability. At present, Australia faces significant challenges with regards to introduced feral species, and the detrimental impacts have been well documented. The cane toad is such an example. However, the ecosystem is not the only thing negatively affected. For instance, the invasive African gamba grass is typically too large for native herbivores to tackle, and is a major contributor to bushfires in Australia, one of which resulted in a loss of over 100 lives on Black Saturday in 2009. Of the opinion that the methods being utilised are failing, Bowman believes more unconventional approaches are needed. He says, The idea of introducing elephants may seem absurd, 
But the only other methods likely to control gamba grass involve using chemicals or physically clearing the land, which would destroy the habitat. I try to be intentionally controversial and provocative by saying we have to consider new approaches to our land management in Australia. If we are going to turn the system around, we've got to actually think outside our current paradigm. He has also suggested the establishment of top predators, such as Komodo dragons, to fill the niche once filled by large reptiles. Or, just as controversially, through the ceasing of dingo culling. Alternatively, the introduced herbivores could be controlled by the reintroduction of, by the reintroduction of Aboriginal hunting and patch burning practices. Unsurprisingly, numerous scientists are unsupportive of utilising elephants to control gamma grass and believe that introducing more species will exacerbate or create new problems. However, there is a greater consensus that the current practices require re-evaluation. Next up, Julianne Popple brings us cyborg cockroaches, mutant moths, and engineering eyes. Any mention of cyborgs tends to conjure up images of Doctor Who, or perhaps, worse still, the Terminator movies. But rather than being a man in a silver suit or Conan with sunglasses and a machine gun, a cyborg is any being that possesses both biological and artificial, electronic or mechanical parts. In any case, the latest developments in cyborg technology are so much stranger than fiction. According to the New Scientist magazine, government agents have long wanted cyborg insects to act as spies and a recent development may just be the first step towards this goal. Joel Voldman and his colleagues from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have created a neural probe that can control the flight direction of moths. The probes were attached directly to the ventral nerve cord, a key part of the insect nervous system. Voltman and colleagues were able to control the turning direction of the moths by remotely sending a signal to a wireless stimulator with a radio receiver attached to the inserted probes. These moths would turn left or right depending on the signal sent. This may be a frustrating experience for a moth determinedly trying to fly to the nearest light source. Indeed, insect neurobiologist Roy Ritzman at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland told new scientists that in order to have a true cyborg insect, you would need to have control of the behavioural commands stemming from the brain. The other thing you need in order to have a fully functional mini-cyborg spy is a power source. And unlike the Energizer bunny, a battery is likely to be too big a burden for a wee insect or run out too quickly. However, Wynn Parry of Life Science reports that another team of scientists led by Professor Daniel Scherson of Case Western University have discovered a way of converting part of the insect's own re chemical energy reserves into electricity. They achieved this by implanting a biofuel cell consisted of two electrodes into the cockroach's circulatory system. At the first electrode, two enzymes break down sugars from the cockroach's food releasing electrons to the second electrode, where yet another enzyme transfers electrons to oxygen in the air. The electricity produced could be used to power small cameras or other sensors. These developments may excite military organisations, however, the general consensus appears to be that the reality of cyborg insect spies is still a long way off. There are also other applications of cybernetic research, however, that are much more family-friendly. Joel Voldman hopes that the probe he used to control flight direction in moths 
may be adapted to help human patients that have lost mobility as a result of a stroke. Also, a team of researchers from Monash University are working on a bionic eye implant. Science Alert interviewed lead researcher Professor Arthur Lowry, who said that the device will directly stimulate the brain's vision centre using a miniaturised implant, which is fed with signals from a camera that has been processed to extract the most useful information to the user. The implant consists of an array of electrodes inserted in the surface layers of the brain at the back of the head, the vision region of the brain. Unlike earlier developed bionic eyes, this version does not require a functioning optic nerve and promises to have even greater resolution. Human trials will occur in 2013, so the future is looking bright for those who've lost their sight from injury and tumours. However you may feel about the idea of augmenting humans and creepy crawlies with technology, it seems that cyborgs are slowly becoming reality. And not just science fiction. And in the next Terminator sequel, Sarah Connor may be armed with a can of mortine. And that was Dr Julianne Popple bringing us cyborg insect spies. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2SR.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, and podcast over the internet on diffusionradio.com. And now, energy too cheap to meter. So claims Italian inventor and entrepreneur Andrea Rossi for his invention of the ECAT energy catalyzer power generator, which may combine hydrogen and nickel with a secret catalyst to make heat and copper and lots of electricity. Ian Bryce is an aerospace engineer and chief investigator for the Australian Skeptics. I spoke with him about his experiences with the Australian investment agent for Rossi's cold fusion power generator. One of the first energy schemes that I investigated was Joe Bielke-Peterson, and uh, he supported the hydrogen fusion-powered, water-powered car from Queensland. And, uh, of course, that turned out to be a scam. When the press turned up for a demonstration, they couldn't find the keys to start it. So that was a bit disappointing. More recently, from about 1999, a group in Queensland called Lutec have developed a free energy machine, they claim, which simply runs on permanent magnets. Now, this is a bit different because it has no possible source of energy. And the people who know the first law of thermodynamics would know that you can't get energy from nothing, like the Lutec machine. There's another type of uh, free energy that gets it from... They understand that there is a source of energy, like cold fusion or the hydrogen fusion-powered car. So that's a step away again. They can claim to obey the first law of thermodynamics, but break down in the more complex laws. For example, uh, Andrea Rossi's cold fusion system, or these days it's more likely to be called low-energy nuclear reactions, that they claim to be able to carry out a nuclear reaction without requiring high temperatures to set it off. For example, normally to set off a hydrogen fusion reaction, you need something like the centre of the sun or a hydrogen bomb, both of which are bad things to do in your backyard. And nuclear fusion is joining the atoms together. That's right. The simplest one would be joining two protons, or a proton, which is a hydrogen nucleus, and a nickel atom, in the case of Rossi's device, which claims to have in it nickel powder and compressed hydrogen, uh, which converts the nickel into copper, which is the next element in the periodic table. But it is nevertheless a nuclear reaction. And something that's puzzled the scientists who've visited is that there's no radiation coming from this device. And what's more, the water that comes out the end, he lets, just lets it run down the drain. One would think that if there's a nuclear reaction going on, there would be daughter products and fission products and isotopes and all sorts of radiation coming out of it. There's none of that at all. So there's perhaps a, a puzzle. There is a puzzle there, and he calls it the energy catalyzer. 
Does he say there's a catalyst? Yes, he does claim that there's a secret process and a catalyst which helps the hydrogen and the nickel to fuse. But all this can happen in a device that's about as big as half a cigarette packet in his three kilowatt demonstrated machine. And if I may describe the the way that's been set up, there's firstly an L-shaped copper device which has been soldered together with a uh, a flame like a plumber would would buy a sorted hardware from the hardware store and stick it together so it doesn't look anything fancy and it's got a pipe in the bottom in which cold water is slowly pumped another pipe at the top out which steam issues so it converts cold water to steam and anyone who's familiar with thermodynamics would know that that is a good way to measure the power output of something you can work out the energy in the steam and the energy going in in the water and get the energy out there's one problem there one is the amount of water or steam coming out but that's a minor issue The other thing it's got is a bunch of wires that come out and go to a blue box. That's quite complex, a bit difficult to measure the current going from the blue box into the device. Theoretically, it's got heating elements in there, and Mr Rossi has to sit there and control the amount of electricity going in from time to time and make adjustments to keep the reaction stable, he says. And the blue box is plugged into a power point, a normal three-pin Italian-style power point. Now, the scientists who observed this have measured the power coming in from the power point, and they've measured the amount of steam coming out, and concluded that there does appear to be an energy gain. In fact, Mr Rossi has a list of no less than 15 scientists who've lent some support for this, people who've either observed the tests and checked the instruments, or who have studied the data and believe that there's some power gain. So that sets this system a little bit apart from the other uh, energy scams that we've seen, having all these scientists to support it. What's the Australian connection? Well, the way that this came to our attention is that Dick Smith was approached by a chap from Mullumbimby, or Byron Bay of all places. And uh, he claimed to represent Andrea Rossi and told Dick that this was a fantastic opportunity to invest. You'd make a a squillion dollars overnight and you'd save the planet from climate change. (laughs) All in one go. All in one go. So Dick is very responsive. Sol Millen also uh, approached a lot of other famous Australians, but they didn't get back. Dick shot back an email straight away saying, well, that's fantastic. All you have to do is show me... an independent scientist who says that it works, and I'll send you a cheque for $200,000. So much to Dick's surprise, back came an email from Mr. Millen saying, here's a list of scientists who support it. And Dick said, "Uh uh-uh, what's this? (laughs) (laughs) So he approached Australian sceptics. Dick told us that if it's really genuine, he'd like to invest in it and help save the planet and maybe help some people get a Nobel Prize along the way. And if it's a scam, we'd all like it put out of business because it's attracting capital and effort that would otherwise go into real energy steams. So Dick approached Australian sceptics, and I'm perhaps their specialist in that area. I'm qualified in physics and engineering. I've looked at uh, many different energy schemes along the way and usually been able to pick some trick involved. So I went up to a meeting in Mullumbimby, meeting of investors. We were hoping to talk to Mr Rossi by Skype, but there was a mix-up with the times and he didn't appear on Skype, so I wasn't able to ask him the questions I had prepared. Nevertheless, Sol made his financial presentation to the group, saying, this is how you invest and this is when you'll get all your money back. And then I was able, Sol allowed me to make a, a presentation representing the sceptics where I put the sceptics' point of view. And I said, from what I've seen, from all these test results and the opinions of the scientists, there's a lot of doubt remaining. And it might be true that they can't see where the energy is coming from. But, but because Mr. Rossi has very, very poor credentials and credibility from past experience and a couple of prison spells and things like that and a previous invention that didn't work, and because this, the theory behind it, the theory of cold fusion, doesn't stack up very well at all. So therefore, on this basis, I'd be inclined to say that we need to do further investigation into the experimental results before investing in it. 
So Dick walked away and Sol was very disappointed. And uh, since that time I've been studying the various reports of the experiments and looking at the setups and hoping to find something that might explain the, the, the uh, apparent energy gain. And then one night, about two weeks ago, 3.53 a.m., I had a flash of inspiration and there it was. <laughs> I figured out how it's, it's possibly done. I can't say whether it's deliberate or accidental, of course, but I can say that there's a very, very simple explanation that would explain it. Despite all the other analysts coming up with schemes like microwave power being beamed in from the next room and two water circuits through the device and um, phase change materials inside the device, I came up with something a lot simpler that could explain it. So what's the secret of the what's trick? The secret? Okay, I gave you the outline of before. We've got a blue box with many wires going to his reactor. We've got water going in and steam coming out. And the amount of power coming out is apparently something like 3,000 watts. Yet the instruments at the power point only say, show something like 800 watts going in, hence the power gain. So I look closely at the instrument layout, and there's an amp meter measuring the current in the active wire and a volt meter between active and neutral. That's the normal way you would measure AC power. And then it occurred to me that if somehow the earth wire was disconnected from the earth pin and connected instead to the active pin, and at the other end the earth wire was disconnected from earth and connected instead to a second set of power regulators going into the device, let's call those the, the B regulators, then you would have a source of power straight into the device through the B regulators that wasn't being metered. Mm, so you're drawing extra current through this separate path. That's right, through the earth wire, no less. And this fitted with a whole lot of things. I was, the scientists I spoke to said that Mr. Rosser usually sat at the computer which was beside the blue box. Now, one would expect that if a scientist happened to approach the amp meter, it would be important to perhaps disconnect this extra power because it would be, if the scientist should think of moving the amp meter to the earth wire, all would be shown. Yes. So it would be a simple matter for someone to just switch off the B regulators and leave the A regulators if someone would approach the, the instruments. And then in that case, they would be able to measure zero current in the earth wire and all would be saved. Hmm. Another thing is that in all seven demonstrations of this type of device from December 2010 through to April 2011, the apparent power that's being generated by it, on my calculations, is always around 2,300 to 2,900 watts. Now, the amount of current you can get from a standard power point in Italy or Australia or anyone else, anywhere else, at 230 volts times uh, about 12 amps gives you about 3,000 watts. So that seems extraordinarily convenient that the, the extra power you've got available matches the capability of a PowerPoint. So these are all circumstantial things. I can't say that it's proved at all. All I can say is that we have a theory that explains the energy gain for the first seven tests and uh, that fits all the data that we've got so far. Since that time, I've spoken to several of the observers of the tests and some of them have been a bit angry at me for casting doubt on their observations that there's an apparent power gain and others have admitted, yes, it's possible. It is compatible with what they observe. That's what I've been trying to find out. So that's some support for it. Well, fortunately, in the skeptics, we've usually had some magicians on the committee and we've discussed ways of, that people can be deceived. And they keep telling me that scientists are the easiest to fool. And it's because we see what we expect to see. We're looking for hidden wires and hidden pipes and hidden radiation. Not necessarily something in plain view might be doing a different function. And that perhaps led me towards the earthwire hypothesis. And the other aspect is that one wonders what sort of a, a person, if the hypothesis is true, what sort of a person would take a safety device like a, an earth wire 
that the world knows is safe to touch and normally has to be connected to the chassis and use that for something, for a live electrical application. It's just as well the scientists didn't touch the metal case of the box, if my hypothesis is correct, because they could have been electrocuted. So it's not just possible that he could be taking people for lots of money, but it might actually be dangerous. Is indeed a concern. I might point out at this stage that this hypothesis only applies for the first seven demonstrations of his ECAT up to April. Now the next confirmed demonstrations were in September. And they were of a much larger device with an entirely different layout and different set of instruments. And up after that point, the Earthwire hypothesis wouldn't apply because the PowerPoint was providing near its maximum capacity according to the instruments. What we think happened then was that the output uh, steam was now routed through a heat exchanger and the secondary circuit of the heat exchanger gave a temperature rise in the water pump through and he was measuring the temperature rise and the flow in that. However, the output temperature as measured by a thermocouple going to the computer was badly positioned so it responded also to the temperature of the steam. So the hypothesis there is that the output temperature being measured was much higher than it really was, which was inflating the output power to such enormous figures, in, some, in one case 130 kilowatts, uh, whereas in fact the input power from the PowerPoint was about 3,000 watts. And on my estimations, it's quite possible that indeed the real output power was about 3,000 watts. So all in all, we feel we've explained all of the nine tests for which results have been given by the two hypotheses. The law of conservation, speaking universally, says you can't increase or decrease the amount of energy. Though energy may change its form and does it constantly, you can't increase or decrease the quantity. Let's say for the sake of argument that either he's got a genuine process somehow or that he's confident he can fool anybody. <laughs> what would be the way for him to demonstrate his equipment in such a way that everybody would accept it was true? Well, there's quite a lot he'd need to do, but the first thing would be to go back and repeat the experiment from March. That's the one I know most about, which was observed by two Swedish scientists, and allow me to measure the current in all three wires coming from the PowerPoint and see if he can then reproduce the 3,000 watts coming out. And if, if, if he'll allow me to do that, then I'll apologise, and I'll, like any scientific hypothesis, I'll say that we now have contrary evidence. That the hypothesis, my hypothesis, is perfectly falsifiable, very easily falsifiable. It would only take about two hours to, to redo the test. And I would happily retract that hypothesis if shown evidence. So that's what I'd like Mr. Rossi to do. It's not too much to ask, really, considering he's asking for millions of dollars of investment. In fact, there were claims online that he was selling the machines for $2 million a piece. Yes, that's his third generation device, which is claimed to be a megawatt machine. Now, it consists of a hundred smaller machines of about 10 kilowatts arrayed inside a blue shipping container. And that was demonstrated once in public with many scientists and reporters there. And it claimed to be an acceptance test for a client, for the customer who was buying it. Now, the problem is it's never been delivered to anyone and he's never said who the customer was. And so there's a lot of doubt there. And the scientists and reporters were not allowed to observe closely or to watch the instrumentation. They don't know what the wiring was. One suspicious item is that he had, a, as it turns out, a 500 kilowatts approximately generator sitting beside it, diesel generator, running continuously during the demonstration that was producing, surprise, 500 kilowatts of heat <laughs> from the output in the form of hot water. And the scientists kept saying, well, why don't you turn off the generator? He says, oh, 
You can't do that because it needs an input power both for the control circuits and for a device called a frequency generator, a mysterious device part of the blue box that that uh, does things he won't tell you about. So therefore he can't disconnect it from the power source. But no one saw the wiring from the generator to really see what the power was. So until we do that, we can't really draw any conclusion about this uh, so-called megawatt device. Now, if he'd patented this device, you'd be able to look up the patent, wouldn't you? Yes, he has applied for several patents. And unfortunately, they don't reveal anything about how it works. He says the one in Italy has been granted. And this could well be true because... If a patent's a bit hard to understand, it's, it's quite common practice for the patent examiners to simply let it through on the grounds that that's the least cost to them and least effort. And if it turns out to be a real invention, then someone at a later date can challenge it. It's the normal course of affairs. So all his patent says is that he has a, a method for getting energy from hydrogen and nickel with a secret catalyst. Right. It doesn't even say whether it's nuclear or chemical energy. So that... The patent is actually no help in protecting him and no help in illuminating how it happens. So one thing we see that scamsters do quite often is apply for a patent of that nature so they can say they've got a patent. And that adds a fair bit of credibility to uh, perhaps investors who haven't done their due diligence. So buyer beware. If it sounds like it's too good to be true, then get in the chief investigator from the Australian Skeptics. Yes, indeed. We'll be very happy to assist anyone in evaluating some a new technology like that. You might remember, and more recently, there's been the firepower fiasco where Sydney sporting teams from around, around Australia were invited to invest. In fact, the Sydney Kings basketball team put a lot of money in, and, and when uh, that turned out to be nothing but a hoax, about $20 million was lost. So on that sort of scale, some advice from Australian sceptics seems to come pretty cheap, I might dare to say. And on that note, thank you very much, Ian Price. Thank you very much, Ian Wolfe. You can find out more about the Australian Skeptics at www.skeptics.com.au. That's Skeptics with a K. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com and tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Larissa Savas, Therese Chen, and Julianne Popple. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>